So I've got a question for you. Which is greater? The universe or the Bible? Which is greater? The universe or the Bible? Now, I, it, it may appear that the universe is more powerful. It's certainly larger, it would seem, in scope. Which which lasts longer? The universe or the Bible? Here's a big question. Which came first? The universe or the Bible? Let's look at it. Go with me to Psalm 33, would you please? going to begin reading at verse 6, Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The gospel of St. John chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 says, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. I love what Hebrews 11.3 says. Would you like to turn there with me? In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. We're going to go to chapter 11 and we're going to read verse 3. Rather than quote this, I want us to read this together. Are you there? By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So here is a critical point for each of us in our life. Well, the world and the universe looks awesome and amazing and overwhelming and powerful and strong. And while it seems like that is what reality is, the truth is the Holy Bible is more real. The Holy Bible is more powerful. And the Holy Bible is more lasting. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said, it would be easier for the sun to stop shining and for the moon to dissolve than it is for one punctuation mark. He said jot or tittle. Those are punctuation marks. For one 
punctuation mark of the word of God to stop existing. See, before there was any of this, before you had the constellations that we have there, before there was a planet Earth, before there was the Milky Way, before there was anything, God's word was already written. The scripture tells us that God had it written before he ever formed anything that exists. He had it written. And so what's really, really amazing is when he told Moses, I want you to start writing and Rose's moat wrote, (laughs) Moses, I'm not sure what I just said right there, but uh, before that guy started writing anything, (laughs) he wrote the first five books of the Bible, but they were already existence. He was just simply putting in man's penmanship what God had already written in eternity past. Your Bible, you can trust it. Some as well, yeah, but man wrote it. No, man didn't write it. Man just published it for Almighty God. God wrote it. Let me just tell you one little, one little historical fact. This doesn't prove the Bible is accurate and true. It's simply Reveals it. Archaeology doesn't prove the Bible is true. Okay. It just, it, it just reveals that it's true. You've no doubt heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. So at some point, I'm sure you've, you've heard a reference to the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were, they were manuscripts, parchments that were found in caves in a region in Israel known as Qumran, right down near the Dead Sea. And they found, they have found hundreds of parchments. One of the parchments they found was a complete scroll of the the book of Isaiah. So the Old Testament book that we know is the book of Isaiah. They found an entire parchment that contain all of Isaiah. And and through the decades, as they have carefully unrolled that parchment, and then experts translated it, they discovered something amazing. One, it was 1,000 years older than any parchment that we had. Number two, It is word for word identical to the translation that we have of the book of Isaiah today. Some some different spellings because through the thousand years the spellings had changed. Some difference in punctuation because the punctuation changed but word for word the same. Isn't that amazing? What am I telling you? You see, the word of God is eternal. Now, if the word of God is eternal, we can place our confidence in it. By faith, we understand that the worlds were formed by the word of God. We can trust God. Faith. Faith. Faith is placing your confidence in and absolute trust in the word of God. Go ahead and go to the next slide for me if you would. 
I'd like you to read this with me. Would you please, everyone out loud? Faith is having great confidence, full reliance upon, and total trust in the nature of God and his unchanging character. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's the King James translation. It's also the New King James translation. It's also the Modern English Version translation. Faith is confidence in Almighty God. I like to say it this way. If you'll give me a second, I forgot to get back to there. I'm still in, in my Bible. Let me get back there. I like to say faith is the absolute assurance. It's the absolute assurance and having total confidence in the promises of God. It is, it, and, and it's like seeing that it's already fulfilled. Okay, when, when a woman is expecting a child, and she lays her hands on her tummy. And she knows she's got a child. She can't see the child. There's nothing there for her to see visibly other than the fact that her tummy's getting bigger and she's gaining weight. And then she'll start feeling the child moving. Amen? Do you know it's the same way for you and I? We can't see God. But we can see his work in our life. We can see our heart growing. We can see our character growing. We can see him being manifest in our life. And there's times we can feel him moving in our life. We can feel his presence. We can feel his love. We feel his joy. We feel his power surging through us. Can't see him with a visible eye. Can't prove him empirically. But his manifested power is reality. And so faith is being able to see with your spiritual eye and hear with your spiritual ear. And and experience in your spirit man and in your soul what may not be visible to anybody else. But you know it's real and I trust it. Faith. Faith. (laughs) Faith. Wow. Wow. So what's the basis of that faith? Well, it's what he said in Hebrews chapter 11, right? Verse 6. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For they that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so my faith, it's not rooted in fantasy. It's not rooted in myth. It's not rooted in mysticism. Or spiritism, my faith is rooted in the absolute trust and confidence that God is exactly who he says he is. He is almighty. He is all powerful. And he's all present. And we said last week, that's not pantheism. That it is the reality that God's presence covers the earth. That his eyes are ever going to and fro across the earth. Looking. To show himself mighty. To those who are faithful and loyal to him. Almighty God has expressed his love to you and I. 
in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, and in calling you to himself, calling you to live with him and walk with him by the Holy Spirit in you. The reality that that is true, that God never stops loving you and never stops abandoning you. But this is where the problem often rises. Wait a minute. You say that God always loves me, then why do you let this happen to me? Wait a minute, you say God always loves me, then how come then how come he let this how come he let this happen? You say that God never abandons me. Well, God wasn't there when that happened to me. God wasn't there when that, when that car wreck happened. God wasn't there. And what we begin doing is we begin painting the image of Almighty God from our human experience. And we let our human experience begin to distort the image of Almighty God. And we get a distorted view. And one of two things happens. Either we have a very distorted view of Almighty God. And so we can't trust him. Or we stop believing in his existence at all. Because our human experience is painting our image of Almighty God. Instead of letting the truth of God's word and the validity of God's word give us the image of God and then bring that image into our human experience, we take it the other way around. Go ahead and go to the next slide for me. But God is love. And God is always present. God has never abandoned you. There's never been a moment his love for you has diminished. And his presence has always been there. You go, well, how come I couldn't feel him? Your experience was overriding your spiritual sensories. And so you were having trouble experiencing him and feeling him at that moment. And doubt rose in your heart. and You begin to question because your human experience began to paint. And doubt began to rise in your heart. And so things happen like this. If God exists, why doesn't God do something to stop all evil? Ever heard that question? If God exists, why doesn't he do something to stop all evil? I, I bet that question was asked a million times a few weeks ago when what happened in Florida. Don't you know that that question rose this week at that university in Michigan? God exists. Why doesn't he do something to stop all evil? The answer is, he did. Wait a minute. There's still evil in the world. Las Vegas. Church in Texas. All you got to do is... Go down to Burnside in Portland. Evil exists. Wait, what do you mean? God stopped all evil. God dealt with evil at Calvary. 
And that's where most people are not understanding. God dealt with evil and he, he has dealt with evil and he has done it by very specific steps. And the first step of dealing with evil was God himself entered the world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin Mary. And for 33 and a half years, he lived on planet earth so that he as a man could experience all of the temptation and, and, and live in all of the evil that the human race lives in. But to do so without sin. And then he encountered in a garden the very one that brought sin into the world in the first place in another garden 2,000 years before that. Just as our original parents sinned and lost the glory of Almighty God, yielding to the temptation of Lucifer in the Garden of Eden, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, after having celebrated Passover, which we just, we just remembered in doing communion, he left there and he went to the Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. And he went there. And in that garden, he met the same mighty force of evil that our original parents, Adam and Eve, faced in the Garden of Eden. That is why the Lord Jesus Christ in Scripture is called the last Adam. People often, you'll often hear people say, he's the second Adam. Uh Uh-uh, the second Adam was a murderer. His name was Cain. Jesus Christ was the last Adam. And the reason he was the last Adam is because he faced the same temptation that the first Adam faced, only he faced it victoriously. He faced it without sin so that Jesus Christ could go to the cross. And while he's hanging on the cross, Heavenly Father could place the sin and iniquity of mankind upon him. Every human being that has ever lived and ever will live on planet earth, their sin was placed on the Lord Jesus Christ while he was hanging on the cross. And when they took him from the cross after he had died and they buried him in a borrowed tomb, our life of sin was buried with him to live no more. And when Jesus Christ walked out of that grave on the third day, he defeated death and hell. He took the keys of death and hell out of the hands of Lucifer and he defeated the one that had caused man to fall into sin in the first place and by his resurrection has made it possible for mankind in his heart to be free from sin and evil in his heart. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ dealt with evil. And now, this may be hard for you to believe, evil can be eradicated. One by one in the hearts of men and women, evil can be eradicated. As men and women are born again, sin happens less. We've we've seen this multiple times down through history. I'm not going to give you the entire history lesson. I'd love to do that. I'm actually writing it out in a blog right now. So in a couple of weeks, it'll probably come out in a blog. Let let me just give you a few just thumbnail sketches down through history. In 1830, a lawyer converted who became a preacher named Charles Finney. 
went into Rochester, New York. And in the weeks he was there holding a revival, may, may I just read to you a quote from his own journal about this. It, it is absolutely powerful. If I can get my page to move on my, there we go. This is what he said. This revival made a great change in the moral state and subsequent history of Rochester. Great majority of the leading men and women in the city were converted. People were exercised with the spirit of agonizing travail of soul. The moral aspects of things was greatly changed. The change in the order, the sobriety and the morality of the city was wonderful. The district attorney of the city said crime has decreased by two-thirds. 100,000 reported to be connecting with churches as a result of that great revival. Totally transformed Rochester. Another report says that the jails were emptied. And that, and, and, and that police officers were forming quartet groups and other things because there wasn't a whole lot to do. Isn't that a, isn't that a great, great story? You know, go a few years, fast forward a few years to 1902, 1903, 1904. The Welch revival broke out in Wales that actually had in the entire cities coming to salvation. The revival was so great that it absolutely transformed the nation of Wales. And it leapfrogged across the ocean to America. And there was such a revival going on in America. Here, here are some of the reports. In the Midwest, Methodists reported the greatest revivals in their history. Every store and factory in Burlington, Iowa closed to allow employees to attend prayer meetings. When the mayor of Denver declared a day of prayer in that city, churches were filled by 10 o'clock. At 11.30, virtually every place of business in the city was closed as thousands gathered for prayer meetings in the downtown theaters and halls. Every school in the town and the Colorado State Legislature closed for the day. In the West, United Meetings attracted 180,000 people. By midnight, the Grand Opera House in Los Angeles was filled with drunks and prostitutes seeking salvation. In Portland, Oregon, the entire uh, uh, city virtually shut down between 11 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. for noon hour prayer meetings. At that same time, God was pouring out his Holy Spirit in a whole new way. In 1896, in the hills and mountains of Kentucky and the Carolina, or Tennessee and the Carolinas, uh, 10 years later in 1906, in Azusa Street. And God poured out the mighty Pentecostal outpouring that began changing the face of America. America was being transformed. At that same time in 1904, listen to what, what happened in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Now, we know what Atlantic City, New Jersey is known for today, right? Well, at that time, the population was 60,000 people. 
And after 12 months of revival hitting that city, it was reported that 59,950 people had converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. By actual reports, there were only 50 people known of in that city that had not converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that astounding? See, God dealt with evil. In the 1970s, a small community in Guatemala, only 20,000 people. But a city that was so evil, the women could not walk the streets alone, day or night. They had four jails that were filled and overflowing. And they were busing people to other communities, jails, every day. Alcoholism was so rampant that, that virtually the male population was alcoholic. Poverty. It was an agrarian community, but they barely had a harvest each year. It was absolutely filled with poverty and evil and crime and violence. But in the 1970s, two pastors began praying for revival. And that spirit began to spread in their congregations. And then it began to spread. That by the 1990s. It was reported that between 80 and 90% of the community had come to salvation. All four jails were closed. There were no buses transporting criminals to other communities. Most businesses had names out of the Bible. But not only that, I don't know if you can see it very clearly but there's a couple of pictures of Alma Longa there. Look at that lady in, in her, what would be uh, her left hand and in her right hand. Those are carrots. Three harvests a year and tomatoes and carrots and vegetables so large that literally from around the world, there have been people going to Alma Longa wanting to know what changed. Why are they able to grow such great? Well, the whole reason is because they've invited Almighty God to be God of their city. Where they had been spiritists, worshiping uh, uh, demonic deities. They now worship Almighty God and the Holy Spirit has control of that city. I'm telling you, God dealt with evil. Now, I also would like you to know there's coming a day when God is going to finally deal with evil in its final form. It's called the great white throne judgment. In the book of Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 to 15. He describes this for us. There's going to come a day. When almighty God. Is going to bring every human being. That is not in heaven. Before the great white throne. And the books will be open, the scripture says. On one side will be the book of life. The other side will be the books containing the story of that person's life. And almighty God will look in the book of life. 
and not finding their name in the book of life, he then will turn to the other books and he will record to them the history of their life. And it will be pointed out to them the sinful activity that they had in their life. And it will also point out to them the times when the Holy Spirit tried to draw them to Almighty God. And because they ran through the mercies and the grace of Almighty God and refused to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will then be judged as unrighteous and they will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever where there is no liberation and there's no annihilation. They will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Every human being that has not received the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will come before the great white throne judgment and they will be cast into the lake of fire. Also cast into the lake of fire before them is going to be what we often call the Antichrist. In scripture he's referred to as the beast. He's referred to as the little horn. He's referred to Uh, by other names but we often call him the antichrist and the false prophet they're the first ones to be cast into the lake of fire and then after almighty God judges mankind then Lucifer and all of the devils and the demons will be cast into the lake of fire to spend eternity and God will have finally dealt with evil once and for all someone says well why doesn't he Go ahead, give God a praise. Go ahead. Amen, he's worthy. Someone says, why doesn't he deal with evil now? Because dear ones, when he finally deals with evil at the great white throne judgment, all opportunity for salvation is over. Once God brings the white throne onto earth, All opportunity for salvation is over. And God's not willing that any should perish. And so he's been merciful. And he's been slow. But what we count as slowness, God counts as being right on time. And so God has said to you and I, Yes, you live in a fallen world. You live in an evil world. Yes, bad things happen to good people. Yes, you have to deal with natural disasters. You have to deal with evil men doing evil things. You have to deal with trauma. But be assured that there is no trial or testing that comes your way, that I will allow to be greater than what you can handle by my grace. And my grace will be sufficient for you. And in all of those situations, I will be present. And my love will be expressed and manifested to you. And my grace will swallow up the evil. And in the midst of that evil, I will bring good. Even in that, I will bring good because I am living God. I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. And then look by faith to that day coming. Because not only is the great white throne coming, but there's another event coming That's going to take place 1,007 years before the great white throne. And I can say that based on scripture. What's that? 
There's going to come a loud blast of a trumpet. And there's going to come a shout of an archangel. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And the Lord Jesus Christ will appear in the clouds in the sky. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, everyone that's received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be taken off of this earth. And then seven years later, all of those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ during the great tribulation, and that's going to be, you don't want to test that. I've heard people say, well, if Jesus comes, I'll, I'll, I'll make it. I'll, I'll, I'll serve him in the great tribulation. I doubt that. I doubt that. You can't imagine. If you've not studied it thoroughly, you can't even dream what the evil is going to be like during those years. But at the end of that seven years, the scripture says, they too are going to receive their glorified bodies. And they too will walk with us. See, almighty God, almighty God will not abandon you ever. And the evil that is in this world, he's dealt with. And he's going to deal with it severely in a final way. Now, what is important to you and I is we have to ask this question of ourselves: Have we allowed... What God did at Calvary and in the burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, have we allowed that to deal with the evil in our own heart? See, don't just look at all the world around you and see how evil it is. Look into your own heart. Have you allowed the power of Calvary And the burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to deal with the evil in your own heart. Now here's here's what I did not ask. I did not ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe the Bible? I didn't ask you that. I didn't ask you, do you go to church? Do you maybe read the Bible once in a while? Do you pray once in a while? I didn't ask you that. See, there, there are far too many that think they've had the inoculation and so they're good. But they've not really let God deal with the evil in their heart. And so they still enjoy their favorite sins. They're still stubborn and self-willed. And they insist on having the final redress and the final word over their life. They have not let the Lord Jesus Christ become the final say in their life. They have not let the word of God become the final say in their life. They have not allowed the righteousness and the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ to be the standard for their life. Because they have not sufficiently repented. They may have said, oh yeah, Jesus, oh yeah, come live in my life. And they're religious, but they're not truly allowed evil to be dealt with. In their heart. So they're bitter. And they're bigoted. They still have their little favorite sins. They still enjoy entertaining themselves. With things that God calls immoral. And they've not dealt with evil in their heart. 
And I tell you the truth. I'm obligated by Almighty God and his word to tell you the truth. You're in great danger of not making heaven. Do you believe in the reality of the great white throne judgment? Do you believe in the reality of the lake of fire? It's real. And I want to tell you, you may, I've had people say to me, well, all my friends are going there, so I'm going to go there. No, you don't want to do that. You, you, just, you just aren't believing in the reality of what scripture says about those two things, the great white throne and the lake of fire. I'm telling you. It will be the worst torture and suffering you can imagine. And there's no relief. There's no liberation. You never get out. It's eternity. That's why it's called the second death. Because you not only die physically, but now you are suffering in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Never to get out. But the Lord Jesus Christ has made a way that you never have to go there. That you never have to worry about that. Jesus dealt with evil. And he dealt with evil so thoroughly that the scripture says that he saves to the uttermost. And I'm asking you today, honestly, look into your heart. Will you trust God? You see, the greatest, the greatest measure of faith is to truly acknowledge God is who he says he is. And to acknowledge that Jesus Christ dealt with sin and to acknowledge that your heart really is that evil. And then thoroughly, when you have faith, you thoroughly repent. You don't want one thing between you and God. You want it all clear between you and God, 100% all clear. We are so blessed that you joined us online today. For more resources on how you can grow your relationship with Jesus Christ, visit us online at www.winacity.com. If you would like to speak with someone about your relationship with Jesus Christ or would like prayer, you can contact us at 541-567-4486 or email us at info at